I did grow up with a very personal relationship with what I understood God to be and spent most of my worship time on the swing set in my backyard. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. I'm speaking In Good Faith today with Emily Christensen, also her AKA is Dr. Emily Christensen, PhD, a bachelor's (laughs) in human development, master's degree in professional counseling, and a doctorate in marriage and family therapy. Clinician for more than 20 years, working as a licensed professional counselor for couples, families, and individuals. All of that makes you an interesting person to speak to, but that's not actually why we're here. We're here because you're a believer. I'm a believer. You're also a chaplain and a counselor, and there's so many things I want to ask you about how that interfaces with your personal beliefs. But I wonder if you'd tell me, very first of all, are you surprised by where you ended up? Yes, absolutely. I never would have predicted that this is where my life would be at this time. Take me back to being a child, early memories of whatever religion was to you. I grew up Southern Baptist with my parents who were somewhat active. My father was a music minister, actually, and so I often went to church with him. My mother struggled because she felt he perhaps was not the kind of husband and father he should be at home and that there was a contradiction there between Mm. what he presented at church and what he presented at home. And so she did not always go. And that was difficult for me being torn between them at times. But I did grow up with um, a very personal relationship with what I understood God to be and spent most of my worship time on the swing set in my backyard (laughs) singing and playing and I guess now I would understand it to be prayer, but not conventional prayer, but literally talking to God constantly just out by myself in the backyard on the swing set. And those are my earliest memories of my faith development. What would you talk to God about? Um, Everything. My family had a lot of struggles and a lot of difficulties and challenges, as many families do. But I had some sense that God was very real and that I was very connected to God. I didn't have a lot of parameters around that other than attending church and reading my scriptures and the things that I learned through that process. But it did lead me to asking questions and definitely seeking out answers after them. When I was in high school, My brother and I transferred to a private school that was a non-denominational Christian school. And that opened up more questions for me because I learned about the evangelical movement or the Great Awakening and historical times like Mm. that in America. And so I began to study that and ask lots of questions about that time period and also other faith traditions. And then for college, I ended up at a theological seminary that was of that same tradition and as part of that training had to attend services of other faith traditions. So then I became exposed to the Catholics and Hindu and Jewish and Muslim and some other faiths and attended several services. And I really, really enjoyed and appreciated the Catholic services and the ancient, just the history that they had as part of their practice and the Mm. things that I didn't know about that I got to learn that even though they had some different understandings than I did, there were many things that they really with their lives protected over time and pieces that I wouldn't know about if those saints had not done what they had done with their very lives. And then also that's when I fell in love with the Jewish tradition and began going to synagogue actively and learned Hebrew then ultimately going to Israel and getting to be there and meet people there. And that really grew those connections in me. But as I became an adult and on my own, that left me with a lot of questions of how all those different pieces fit together. And 
through questions and studies, that's when I ultimately met the missionaries and became a Latter-day Saint. You talk about learning Hebrew, speaking. You talk about singing and your father being in music ministry. You're also a member of the deaf community. Yes, I am so, deaf. So these, these would be curious things for lots of people to put together. I am deaf, and I have cochlear implants now. I didn't at the time. I had a progressive hearing loss, and music was very important to my family. So even now, I am a member of the deaf community, and I use sign language. And living in Kansas City, there's a huge deaf population, and so it's a wonderful opportunity to be immersed in my own culture, and I love that there. But at the same time, I married a man who writes musicals and plays violin, and I play cello. And music is very important to my family. My children all play piano and violin. And just integrating those pieces of who I am has been part of this journey for me. There's so much I can express through sign language and that I cannot express in English. And there's so much I can express through cello or piano that I cannot express in words. So yeah. I love that. I started learning Hebrew when I was probably in second grade, just little bits. And I had a Jewish friend who taught me some things and both traditions and, and teachings as well as Hebrew itself. And that just really blossomed for me. I continued to study it through school and then was given a Book of Mormon in Hebrew, which is not actually printed anymore right now, um, just out of respect. And so part of my study, though, personally was translating that not just back into English, but through sign language into English, which really changes the modern English. And that has been a fun experience just for my personal study. Do you have the feeling that God has led you through these different experiences to prepare you for what you do now as a counselor, as a chaplain with so many different people? Absolutely. As a chaplain and as a counselor, I work constantly with people who are of different faiths and different backgrounds, and I'm able to connect with them in ways that are absolutely a result of my experiences being exposed to different cultures and living in different countries and learning different languages and studying the different aspects of faith traditions and the truths that they hold and how we can work together and how those truths come together and how people come together. And that's what people are looking for when they're in the hospital or someone is dying. Um, they're looking for how to unify their family or how to be present in those final moments when there are no words for it. Mm. You are also a cancer survivor. And yes. no one would wish these things upon themselves and yet, in your writings, I am so amazed with what you have learned. And I'm thinking compassion that you've learned for other people. Mm. Cancer changes everything, for sure. Mm. And cancer was a time where my faith changed, not just because it was challenged by mortality, but because there was nothing I could do about it. There mm. was nothing I could do about cancer, and there was nothing I could do about my faith. It just was. Mm. So cancer, I could take treatments or I could do this or I could do that. But really, I had to sit there and lay there while those things fought in my body. And I felt so helpless. Mm. And then with my faith tradition, there was no time then to decide, okay, what do I believe and what am I going to do about it? You have what you have. Yeah, it just is. And now's the time. Like the mm. test is now. There's no more study time. So when I had cancer and going through chemo and surgeries and things like that, I could no longer physically for that season, and it was a hard season for me, I could no longer spend hours and hours in study and live in nerd land or whatever <laughs> of, of doing all these checklist things of, yes, our families could say our prayers. I could say my prayers. We could read scripture studies, scripture study with my husband, scripture study with my children, and like check off all the things we're supposed to do. But I physically could not sit up. I could not stay awake to read my scriptures. Mm. I could try to listen to them on my phone, or I could ask for blessings, and I could take sacrament when people could bring it to me, things like that. Which would be the communion. Right, right. Yeah. But that was my communion, was those moments of, it is me and God. Here we are right mm. now. There's nothing I can do on my own to practice my faith, except simply be here present with God and my body as it is. 
That's a really great sort of a nudge for lots of us to be sure that we have a relationship before we're in those those moments. Sure. Are there particular moments that you go back to and say, I believe in God because of this time, this thing, this answer, or this thing that I see in retrospect? Absolutely. I believe in God because of those moments before anyone told me who God was that I felt and encountered in the swing set on the swing set in my mm. backyard. I believe in God because of the miracles that I have seen and experienced in my life and the life of my family in ways that are far beyond what we could have done on our own or arranged on our own. And it's all about what I have felt and experienced. It's not about what I know. I know a lot because I've studied hard and worked hard. I know a lot because he gave me the brain that I have and I have worked hard to learn things and I'm educated, but none of it about my relationship with God is about what I know other than what I have felt and experienced. And so has become knowledge, not from a book, but from what I have been through and what I have encountered. You know, there is a, there's a well-known book from the past called A Course in Miracles. That's how I think of your life. <laughs> when I read about your life on your blog and in, in your books, you, ha- you have a book called Keeping Kyrie, which is about the youngest of your six children. But I'd like to mention that over time, you and your husband, right when you got married even, decided to sign up to be foster parents. You had over 80 children over four years, some just overnight some for months and others. And then there were six particular ones, I guess you call them the ones that stayed. Yes. Being on a honeymoon is not the time when most people think, (laughs) dear, I love you. This is so wonderful. Let's go now and sign up to be foster. What was happening? What made you decide to do that? That's true. Well, first of all, my husband always says, tells everyone, he always says that before we came to earth, that when they were saying, pick your challenges that you're going to need to help you progress through life that he always says that I signed up for all the classes. And so all of this (laughs) keeps happening because I checked all the boxes. But when we were on our, it's true, when we were on our honeymoon, we did sign up to be foster parents. Um, My husband's parents had fostered a child when he was young. And so it was something he was always interested in. I had worked with so many children needing placement or trying to discharge from facilities that I couldn't put anywhere because there were not enough foster homes. And at one point, I just came to the conclusion that I can't keep complaining about the problem if I don't become part of the solution. We had already talked about it. And then when we were on our honeymoon, we spent that week filling out all the paperwork. (laughs) So romantic. (laughs) Well, we were, I mean, we were 35 when we found each other. Ah. We were, it took us a long time. I'm a convert. That was part of it. And he was holding out for me, which I appreciate, but made everyone in his family a little anxious as he was expected to marry young. But it took us a long time to find each other. And so when we came together, we knew we don't have a lot of time left. Not like we're ancient, we're going to die tomorrow, but that we have to use our time well and that there's a purpose we were brought together. And for that matter, even a purpose, it took us so long to find each other. So what is that meaning and what are we going to do about it? So we signed up to be foster parents and then We had no idea how the next few years were going to unfold, but we were just being obedient to what we felt prompted to do. And then my father passed from cancer, and then my mother was killed by a drunk driver. And so our first year Mm. of marriage was just one grief after another. We also had one miscarriage after another, not knowing that that was going to happen when we were signing up for to be foster parents. And so our first year, there was so much grief, so much grief. But by the time we were made it to our first anniversary, we had nine children. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Well, you made up, like you say, we must use our time wisely. We tried. Are you overachievers by any chance? (laughs) (laughs) Gluttons for punishment, maybe. It's been lovely for me to read in in this book, Keeping Curia, you actually talk about receiving each of the children and many of the foster children and 
that feeling that certain ones were meant to be there and to be a family. And now you have those, those six. And they have particular needs, I think, each of them, some more than others. A year of grief like that, a lifetime of difficult experiences, some people find bitterness instead of trust in God. I think that's absolutely an option. Life is really hard. And when you have adversity or challenges or illness or deaths or all these things that can happen during mortality, that's absolutely a valid choice. And it happens. But I think choosing that limits why we go through all of those things and the meaning that's to be found there. If I chose bitterness, it would be the end of it all because Mm. that would be all that it means. And I don't think that hard things are meant to pull us away from God. I think hard things are meant to pull us closer to God. It's very hard in the moment because you feel so alone and so helpless and so hopeless even at times. It's easy to give into despair or to wonder what all of these things are supposed to mean or why it's happening or what you're supposed to do about it. Or just literally, I'm not strong enough for this. Like, I'm tired. I'm so (laughs) tired of all of these hard things. And at the same time, quitting or giving up or giving into bitterness makes it all mean nothing. And it wastes all that. Hmm. And I want my bad days to mean as much as my good days. So whether it is because I've failed or messed up or made a mistake or a bad choice or something in some way, or because of external circumstances, I still have the right and the freedom to call on God. And God is still with me in those moments. And I believe and have experienced that even in the moments when everything is outside my control, literally in a hospital room, with an infant that can't breathe and I can do nothing and I am there for four months all by myself and separated from my family, separated from my congregation, separated from my friends, my parents are gone, all of my babies that I had had through pregnancies are gone, I have nothing except this baby that I don't know how to keep alive, that even in those moments, God is there and God knows what he's doing and God has not abandoned me and that we are loved, that that baby is loved, that my parents were loved and that all of it works together greater than what I can understand in that moment. And I have found that the more that I trust that, the more that I do get answers down the road as things unfold and the more that things do make sense over time. But I have to trust him and be present in that moment, knowing that he's also present with me. In your work as a chaplain, to me it seems it could be interesting as a chaplain working with people from different faith backgrounds or no faith background. Is there some mindset that you have to have to be able to help them worship in or find solace in whatever way their tradition? I mean, obviously there's some training, but is there some some way that you set your mind and your heart when you walk into a room to help people through difficult times? When I walk into a room to help someone at the hospital like that or or in a counseling session, um, I know that I'm going in there to be present with them where they are. Mm -hmm. I'm not going in there to bring them to what I think or what I know or with an agenda to make them come this way or that way. I'm going in there to just be present with them and just love them. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that means finding who their spiritual leader is locally and bringing that person there. Sometimes it's making phone calls to extended family for them or with them. Sometimes it's contacting funeral homes or sometimes Mm -hmm. it's praying or singing. And sometimes it's just being quiet. Sometimes it's hard when someone is dying. That's not something that I can just change. I'm not there to rescue them from that. You know, there are some things when I have counseling clients, I can say, oh, well, it's not really that bad. Let's let's cope with this. Let's deal with that. But sometimes it really is that bad. Sometimes this really is happening and there's nothing we can do about it. And there are lots of questions about that, but just being present with them. I I am a counselor online 
and have a lot of international clients. And some of those are in very hard and difficult places in the world. And they tell me, this is what I'm dealing with and this is what I'm dealing with and it's not safe to talk about it and there's no one to talk about it. And I can't say to them, oh, it's not really that bad. Just you know, take a few deep breaths, you're gonna be okay because they might not be okay and it really is that bad. And so sometimes it's not even about doing for them or trying to get them to do for themselves. Sometimes it's just about being with them. Mm. So they know that someone knows and understands. Right. What are the things that you find joy in, in that practice, professionally? Professionally, like at work? Uh-huh. We call it work, and yet somehow I have a hard time calling it work because it's so intertwined with people's feelings and life experiences. But yes, what you do. It's true. <laughs> I find joy in my work as a chaplain when I see families who maybe weeks ago were not even speaking come together to honor the life of someone that they all share love for and watching how that unifies them in those moments, even though they may have so many other differences. I find joy in seeing how nurses and physicians and tech people and housekeepers and lunch people, how all of them give up so much to care well for people and make them comfortable when they can't do anything for themselves. And I find joy in the empty hallways at night and on the weekends and on the holidays when no one comes to visit where God is there. And I can feel instruction both for me personally and guidance for who to go see and which door to knock on and mm. who to visit and to know how to be with them when I don't have any of the answers at all. What personal practices make you feel, aside from work, but again, it's all connected. It's really hard to separate right. these out. Personal practice make you feel the most in touch with God. The things that make me feel most in touch with God would be when I let go of myself, when I put away what I think is important to get done on the computer or household chores and play with my children instead. When I help someone at the hospital who is being rude to staff and hateful and mean, but I understand that they're grieving and meet them there and help them grieve so that they can communicate more effectively and get what they need and have their needs met. I have to turn off all the noise. Sometimes because I have the cochlear implants, I can literally take off my ears and just have the silence and just be with God in that way. Sometimes it's declining great activities for our family so that our family can just be at home together. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's not turning on social media or watching movies or listening to things, but just listening to my husband sing hymns or play violin or things that still me away from what I think I should be and bring me back to who God says I am. Do you have any sense, having walked a path and felt like you were being led along it, I'm guessing maybe just one step at a time and sometimes almost only seeing the step as your foot was coming down. <laughs> do, you, do you see a path forward or do you just sort of trust Things are going to work out. I think it's a little of both. I never in any moment know anything is going to work out. I don't even know how to get my son home from here. <laughs> I don't know how things are going to work out, but I know that they will. Mm -hmm. And so for me, that's a distinction. I worked very hard to make myself a very educated person, and I have been brought to being a person who knows nothing. I don't know what the answers are for these people that I serve. I don't know what the answers are for me and my family, but I know that they're there and that we will get them in time. And so I have seen things unfold from, from the blogging into the book to recognizing that we're not children's books. And so we did the children's book series so that our kids could see themselves reflected. And now meeting those kids that find the books the same as them and, mm. and, that they learn that they're okay because there's other kids who feel the same as they do or things like that, how everything becomes a greater ministry than what it once was. So what feels like a small task becomes 
something else and then shapes into something else. And it's always evolving and progressing, becoming more than what I ever could have imagined it would be. You talked about this childhood speaking with God, even unuttered wordless prayers, feelings. Was there ever a time where you thought, I was wrong? I don't even know if there is a God. I don't think that there was ever a time that I didn't know there was a God. But I think I was certainly challenged by those experiences where I felt like I was being pulled from God. Hmm. And I don't know if the words you would use to describe it would be opposition or just a darkness or the context of everything we were going through. But there were times where I felt like I had to hold on to my faith through sheer will and determination and practicing the things that I could, even if those things were different than what they were in the past or new things. As a parent, Mm -hmm. six children, and actually some of them with overlapping ages because they've come through the foster system. They they, they did not come uh, intentionally spaced. In fact, (laughs) I think there's some you call triplets and then two you call the twins and then the youngest. We have we have three fourth graders and two first graders, and then the three-year-old. She's three now. Uh-huh. Do you think differently about God or religion from your experience as a parent to those children? Oh, my goodness, yes. Parenting our children has changed everything. There's the layer of becoming a parent in general where you hear yourself talking to your child and realizing that you've heard that from God for like 20 years and what took you so long to (laughs) understand and process and make those changes. But also the way that you love a child and realizing that Heavenly Father loves you even more than that and that no matter what they do or what they're struggling with, that you are still loved because you love your child like that. So all of six of my children have special needs. One is deaf, one has autism, one has cerebral palsy. We have one with reactive attachment and one with fetal alcohol syndrome. And then the youngest that the book is about was born without an airway. So all of their special needs are pretty complicated and take a lot of work. And what I have learned from them, even though it is at times exhausting, even infuriating, either at them or at their biological parents that cause problems or all kinds of different reasons because you want to put blame somewhere. But what I have learned is that not only is this not their fault, but also weakness is not a sin. And that took me so long to understand. And even as I converted, I read books about it again, trying to gain knowledge, right? But it was the experience that taught me that these things that my children struggle with that sometimes show up through behaviors or the way they interact with others, that this is not the same as something they're doing wrong or not the same as their bad kids. My kids are amazing kids, but they have a lot of challenges. And realizing that Heavenly Father knows that about me, that I have a lot of challenges and I have different weakness for different reasons and because of what I've been through or because of what my parents went through before me or all kinds of, all of these reasons. Yeah. But he still loves me like 100%, like entirely all of who I am, even that part. That has maybe been the biggest lesson for me so far. And in that way, learning to love myself too differently. Speaking today with Emily Christensen, Dr. Emily Christensen, the woman who signed up for all the classes and is sharing (laughs) life wisdom gained through experience. I really appreciate you speaking with me today in good faith. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to In Good Faith. In the second half of the show, we'll hear a panel of listeners talk about the ideas presented by our guest, chaplain, counselor, and author, Dr. Emily Christensen. Back in a moment with more of In Good Faith. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person accounts and stories of faith and belief. When things have gone really, really wrong, is bitterness an option? Or is there more meaning in making another choice? Have you felt led through experiences that later seem to have prepared you for what was ahead? 
And have you had times when study time was definitely over and you were in the middle of the test? We invited a group of people to listen to our guest and then respond. Peggy Woodruff is a mother of six, grandmother of eight going on ten, and wife to a great guy. She loves life, animals, chocolate, and nature. Mike Jensen is father of five and works with digital media distribution. He previously taught computer programming and American history to high school students. He's been a lay minister to his congregation and, most importantly, happily married for 19 years. Rod Gustafson is a radio producer, parent-oriented film critic, and wants to taste every flavor of ice cream. Lisa Valentine Clark is mother of five and hosts the Lisa Valentine Clark Show on 107.9 FM and Sirius XM 143 every morning. May I just say that this entire conversation I've just listened to has absolutely stunned me. Mm. This woman is superb. But the thing that I wanted to start off with was the thing that she started off with, her belief that even before she was taught, she knew there was a God. I related to that because I came from a family of, if they were believers, they didn't talk about it. Perhaps they were casual believers, but I wasn't really taught about God. But I remember praying in my bed at night to an, to an old gentleman that looked sort of like a grandfather to me that I knew was there and listening to me. And one of my earliest experiences was when I lost my precious stuffed dog that I always slept with. And my first inclination was to cry. And then my second inclination was every night to please ask God to help me find him. And by golly, he did. About three weeks later, my sister had a thought and she ran to the closet and got out our sleeping bags that we had slept in on the lawn weeks before, and there he was at the bottom of the sleeping bag. So I knew that God was listening to me. So I started this listening to that whole conversation with tears because it really resonated with the fact that, yeah, I knew God was there too. I find that personally amazing as well. I grew up with religion in the home as a pretty standard thing, and it informed a lot of how I viewed the world. It was, it, there being a God is just as normal as you drop a ball and it falls to the ground, or it's all part of the, the way things are. I can't even imagine how to question that even even back then as a, as a small kid. It's just, no, nope, he's there. And so when, you know, as I grew up in, in, and had friends that weren't necessarily religious, they, they sometimes couldn't figure out how I could believe, and I couldn't figure out how they couldn't, and mm-hmm. it, you know, and that that did it made a huge difference in the way that we were friends. But it, it was something that, as I grew older, I realized that's I, I can't even imagine it not being the way it is. It just is, and uh, and that feeling that comes with it has been very sustaining through my, my whole life. I really appreciated her conversations of how she started conversing with God which I have been quote-unquote religious now for probably, you know, two-thirds of my life. And I still don't know that I am reaping the benefits of conversations with God. I tend to still talk to him and then kind of walk away before I get the answer, if that makes any sense. And Mm -hmm. I really appreciated how she, at such a young age, was able to develop her faith and trust by having conversations. I also really appreciated when she said she is able to take off her ears. I sometimes wish that wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> we had a little on-off switch that, that would allow us to be able to do that. We live in such a noisy, complex world. I'm grateful for my hearing, but being able to turn off your ears every now and then, I think would really, I think we would be amazed at the other sensitivities that we would develop that we have not necessarily taken advantage of. I love the imagery of her as a little girl on a swing set, just having what she said was constant conversations. And maybe because I'm such a verbal person and always have been even as a child, I relate to that and had a swing set in my backyard and had a tree that I would climb and had a lot of time as a little girl to be lost in my thoughts and never questioned if there was a God or not. Was taught in a religious home and had that practice early on. I remember as a preteen entering teenagehood, thinking that now I should probably re-examine my beliefs. I don't know if I was having an existential crisis at 12 or what, but (laughs) I think I was. And I remember 
praying to know if there was a God and kind of laughing at myself and almost laughing with God of, well, of course, there is, you can't pretend like you haven't had these conversations or have felt that presence. And I love that Emily talked about that, of always feeling that God was there, even in in her darkest moments, but especially as a child. I, I really related to that. As you've been talking, I've been remembering those times in my childhood where I had a lot of time of solitude, sitting in the apple tree and pulling the Concord grapes off that had gone into the trees and and just thinking and lying on the grass and looking up at the stars at night. Do you think we still have that kind of time? Children have that kind mm. of alone time to to contemplate the universe and to that's probably off subject, but I think that's really a neat thing to have a lot of alone time to think about these existential things. And I think that is why it is so important for children to have that time. When I listened to her story and how she had that time, and, and, and like you, Peggy, I recall when I was younger, my parents occasionally attended the Episcopalian Church, or I was in Canada, the Anglican Church of England. I remember one night coming home from um, the Christmas service, communion, and it was midnight, and I, my mom and dad went into the house. I was an only child, and um, it was literally about 25 below outside, a gorgeous, clear sky like we usually have over the prairies over the winter. And I just remember standing outside in this cold air and looking at the stars and thinking about what my relationship with God was. And I am so concerned that so many young people aren't getting those moments right now. And like what Emily described here as well with her moments as a child, I think those are really formative to build faith and to build trust. One point of encouragement that Emily really brought out, though, was that God meets you wherever you are. And that no matter what your religion is, your background, your culture she was able to observe this across the world and in different communities that God is there and will work and will speak to everyone. Mm-hmm. And and I, I firmly believe that. I, I grew up as a religious minority in Nebraska, had friends of all different faiths. My mother worked with public relations and worked in interfaith councils. So we were very familiar growing up with other faiths and faith traditions and being able to share spiritual experiences with friends across the different faith spectrums was very informative to me and really helped to strengthen my own belief in God specifically because that I feel so strongly about that and it rings so true that God would loves all of his children and would speak to all of them mm-hmm. and that made sense to me then that that was the loving God that like a loving heavenly father that that I had imagined as a child and had come to know as a teenager. I think that's probably what makes her such a, a fabulous chaplain mm-hmm. is the <laughs> the sheer breadth of her, her experience of seeing all the religions and living in other places. And so I think that's what lets her meet them where they are too mm-hmm. and not come in with a I can solve your life kind of kind of attitude. And I think that one of the things she, you know, was asked of her is, do you think all these things led up to this moment or these and I believe those things definitely occur in my own life. I'll take a, a slice of my life and say, oh yeah, all these things led up to this moment. But I found that God actually in the tools that he gives us, the experiences that he gives us, they are gifts that keep on giving. They're never just isolated to this. This is the one moment. And I think that her lifestyle, the things that she's learned along the ways, with an eye single to the faith that she has, has been able to have her continually glean things from the experiences that she continually has for every moment that she's in. And and, and, and I've had that in my, my own experiences as well. You know, I look back at my I'm in technology now as far as uh, occupation goes. I remember in college, I just, I'm like, I don't want to study that. I, I like it, but I didn't want to study it. And I went off into, into teaching high school. Things turned around and I taught technologies and those kind of things. And it brought me to where I am now. And I love the job I have. And I think to myself, oh, you know, all those things were, you know, for this moment. But then as time continues to progress, these moments still keep on coming. And it seems like it just keeps on giving, um, whether it, it's an experience from my childhood or it's an experience from my college life. 
the things that God has given me are gifts that just keep on giving. It's All. like everything that's happened to you in your life, every experience is, is in the closet. They don't uh, define your life every minute, but there are times when you pull that out of the closet and say, yes, I learned that, or yes, that's going to help me now. This is probably why my basement's full of just old stuff, just in case I, just in case I need it. <laughs> this is, you know, exactly. It's, You're prepared. Exactly. I, I can relate to that. And Mike, I think what you just said, too, aligns very well. One of the best lines in this interview that she said was how she wants her bad days to mean as much as her good days. That really struck a chord to me as I think back, and and Mike, what you were just explaining about kind of coming to a dead end with one career idea, but it pushed you to another one, and how we really need to look at those bad days as what can I learn from this, and where can I, how can I grow from this? Along with that, I mean, I really appreciated her thoughts on cancer and about moments where practice time is over, where everything you have that you need is all you have. There's nothing, there's nothing else to do. Mm-hmm. Our, our first child that we had was stillborn. Um, we found out 20 weeks into it that she wasn't forming properly, and we knew she was going to die. And it's amazing how many people say, oh, you guys are so strong. And you don't feel strong. No. You don't feel like, you know, some kind of, you know, superpowered person of all sorts. You, you feel very small and very weak, and you just kind of plug on. And then, she, you know, she talks about, well, you know, you can't let bitterness take you over. You can't, you can't let the sadness be the definition of what this relationship is. The relationship that we get to have with God is as he comforts us, he helps us remember and define the moments and the happy things that we, you know, that we had, that we were excited to be pregnant and to be parents soon. That experience has helped us feel and understand the miracle it is to be a parent, that this is not just about biology and making things work in that respect. And so five kids later that that did survive and and are, are healthy and smart and all those kind of things, we get to see them with the, the experience of having one that that didn't make it. And we are it, it makes us more grateful and more understanding and maybe hopefully more sympathetic and compassionate and, and glad that they're here instead of just you know, like, oh, you're just driving me nuts today, kids. <laughs> but that, uh, that even in the bad days, they're good days. That was one of my favorite things that she said. In essence, where will your trials pull you? Will it pull you into bitterness and away from God? Or will this trial pull you toward God to seek his comfort, to seek his answers? I love that, that finding meaning in the things that happen to you, finding meaning in the good days, finding meaning in the bad days. God can help us do that. And I like how she acknowledges the that sometimes that there are no answers and that she said, I have spent my whole life becoming educated to knowing God, to studying, and she really has. She studied religions, she studied different languages and cultures in order to understand God or to understand her life. I mean, I'm sure for lots of reasons, but she said that she comes to the conclusion then that I don't know what the answers are (laughs) in all my education, and that really struck a chord with me. I also, like Mike said, I loved when she said, you know, cancer changes everything. There's nothing I could do about it, that it was cancer or faith, and that she felt helpless and that there was no time then to decide what she believed. The test was, you know, put away your pencils, (laughs) your study materials. The prep is over, and now it's time for the real test, and I've had an experience like that as well. And it just reminds me of when my husband was diagnosed with ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease two and a half years ago and was given two to five years to live. It's a terminal disease. There's no treatment. There's no cure for it. It's just it is what it, it is. It just is what it is. There's no answer you know, to, to be solved. And I, I think for the first year, I was in shock and kept thinking, yeah, but I'll find the answer because I can work really hard. And I have lots of faith and I can be led to this. And being led through that grief that is overwhelming to the end of, I have no answers. Nothing that I can come up with seems or feels right. I would get mad. I still kind of get mad when people say, well, what have you learned through this experience? I think, 
Well, I've learned that life isn't fair. <laughs> that grief feels horrible <laughs> is what I know. And the rest of it are guesses. But through it all, I know that God is there. I've never felt abandoned by God. I've felt led through it. And I heard that in Emily's experience. And I appreciated her candor and the candid way in which she explains that she knew that God was there in those helpless moments when she was in the hospital and trying to, you know, holding this baby that couldn't breathe. How helpless do you feel? I've had a similar experience when my husband can't talk or communicate or is having a hard time breathing. You feel there are no words to really fully describe what you think and what you feel in those moments, but she's been through it and encountered it. I've been through it and there's no way that I can express it in words, but I do know like she does that God is there. And she even acknowledged, which I really like this idea of you can exist in the same space of knowing that God is there and not having really any answers, but knowing that it's going to be okay and that it's going to work out. And she doesn't know how. And I find myself thinking that a lot of I have no idea how this is going to work or how the next three months or six months are going to go, but it'll work out. And the reason why I know that is the same way that Emily does in that we have seen it before. And when you are in those moments of extreme vulnerability and grief and pain, and you know that God is there and you can't explain it, there is some strength in that. You know, in my mind, I loved hearing her say, that she's been brought to know nothing. Mm-hmm. And I know that feeling of growing older and supposedly knowing more and yet having no answers and knowing less and feeling. And to me, it's like I am a child. I don't have the answers. I've learned a lot, but I still am brought to know nothing, but I am God's child. Mm-hmm. And having that trust that no matter what, he knows I'm here. I feel that the idea that, I don't know, I don't know where it comes from when we grow up and we start thinking we can predict the future, that we know what we're going to be when we grow up. And, yeah. you know, I mean, we have all these plans as if that we have some large level of control. We, ha- we have ways to influence our own future. But I think that, again, as we grow older, you come to that, you know, you're, you're brought to the knowledge that I don't know nothing. I don't know, you know, I don't know what's going to work out, but I do know the rule set which will give good outcomes to whatever comes our way. And so... And that's I, I, hanging on to God. Yeah, and that's exactly <laughs> it. I mean, it's the faith that we have that that these things are, these experiences are for our good, that they are meant to help us grow and to learn, and that there is some future out there that is better than the current present that I'm experiencing. Yeah. And it might dip before it gets, you know, higher in those respects. But I I wrote that down as well when she said that, you know, it's going to work out. And I, I think that when we have faith, we not believe it will work out, but we'll believe it will work out well. And isn't it great that she said, and that she has the experience, and as a chaplain, as a mother, as a spouse, as a friend, she can sit with people and say, yeah, it really is that bad. <laughs> because that helps me in my grief. Acknowledgement. When someone will sit with me in an uncomfortable situation and say, yeah, that really is the worst. I'm so sorry. Mm-hmm. And and I think sometimes our, our society, our, our modern society, I don't know, we don't know how to deal with grief. We don't know how to grieve with other people, but she does. Mm-hmm. And Emily just saying, God is there. We are loved it really is that bad. And just sitting in that, acknowledging that bitterness is a viable option, but... Finding to, meaning is better. Finding meaning is better. And and having that desire to be closer to God is worthwhile. And that is something that you can do when you feel like there is nothing you can do. And you really are helpless and there isn't anything you can do to change your situation. That's helpful to me. I think my faith in God has helped me realize that when I do listen to God, when I try to draw closer to him in these difficult times, there's a way that he is able to relate to me saying that your that your sorrow or your pain, he doesn't marginalize that. Right. Um, and say, oh, no, don't worry about that. Just focus. I mean, he has a way to accent the good without necessarily making you feel bad for feeling bad. Again, like you said with your husband, like, this just sucks. You know, this is not fun. This is I call you know, it the worst. The worst. It really <laughs> what disease does he have? It's the worst case scenario. It's the yeah. it's the whatever scenario everyone dreads that they hope that they don't have. Right. 
and and again, there's nothing I think that comes from God to say, well, you shouldn't feel that way. No, and I have never felt that from my relationship with God and from my many, many pleas to Him. Exactly, well, and I think that, that that's what I liked about the way she also presented her faith, and, and the way I hope I present my faith is to say that, you know, there are things in life that are just hard and even horrible, but you're welcome to accept a path of bitterness and despair, but if we try to find meaning, we will find that there's great meaning in these things, and there's great happiness that comes along the way, not not just at the end, but along the way. And part of that meaning comes through the grieving process, which is distinctly different than being bitter with God. Yeah. I had a, a friend of mine tell me once, he says, one of the things that frustrates me about people with faith is that when somebody dies, they say, well, don't worry, they've gone to a better place. And it implying, why are you worried? Why are you grieving? Yet, mm-hmm. I think it is that grieving period that allows us to develop that deeper relationship with God and that— And empathy for people. Yes. It's an opportunity. Yeah, exactly. It's evidence of love. Mm -hmm. And when we feel that from God, when we feel God's love, when he mourns with us, Mm -hmm. and I have felt that, and some of my darkest moments have really felt that God was mourning with me. He wasn't telling me, don't worry about that. Think of this. He was mourning with me. And I heard that in Emily's account. Mm -hmm. I heard that in her voice when she was saying, God is there. Repeatedly, as she has worked through so many difficult circumstances with her foster children, with her her first year of marriage. I, <laughs> what a know, bunch of grief. Oh, I, I just I, made me want to weep with her. Oh, yes. What a yes. year. That was what a year. It really was. I have something that I, I put a star next to. I was really struck with when she had her cancer, she said, now there was no time to decide what I believe. When a big test, when life's circumstances are out of your control and it really is that bad, you don't have time. She said that she didn't have time or she couldn't even lift her head to read her scriptures, let alone study with her family or answer these questions. When my husband was diagnosed, it was a whirlwind. There were, was no time for me to decide what I believed. That's when it goes into action. And I think sometimes our life circumstances catch us off guard. And yes, are an opportunity to become closer to God or further away. But also, these opportunities require a lot more preparation than we anticipate. That maybe mm-hmm. is best done when we're in the sunshine. I before the storm agree hits. Yes. with that. Yes. I all too often have set out on a road trip In Western Canada, we get these huge, huge west winds. Uh, Sometimes I've set out on road trips with only a little bit of gas in my tank because I've made it every other time. But (laughs) sometimes you're fighting into that huge west wind and you didn't have enough gas in your tank. And that's a bad time to have made that decision. And I think that that's true. We really need to keep our faith topped up for those times in our life. We really do. That's our time for today. Thanks to our panelists, Peggy, Michael, Rod, and Lisa, and especially to counselor, chaplain, and author, Dr. Emily Christensen, for generously sharing her stories and her faith. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. Find us online at byuradio.org slash ingoodfaith. Subscribe to our podcast at iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm your host and producer, Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join us again soon right here in Good Faith.